So in our culture, <clears throat> sometimes referred to as the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the modern secular West that you and I live in, which is highly uh, skeptical about anything that, ha- that has to do with miracles or the supernatural or anything like that, it's become increasingly common for people to view the resurrection not as a literal, physical event that actually took place in history, but more as a, as a metaphor. For instance, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my family and I went to D.C. for the Cherry Blossom Festival. And uh, if, you, if you've ever been down there, if you know anything about, about cherry blossoms, they're really beautiful when they bloom, but it's a very short-lived bloom. It's, it's maybe two weeks if you're lucky, if a storm doesn't come and knock them all off. And so during that time, hundreds of thousands of people get into D.C. and walk around the Tidal Basin. And um, cherry blossoms are, are a, um, apparently a source of inspiration for a lot of people. You can look this up. They represent renewal. They represent optimism, kind of this idea that, uh, you know, beauty always follows apparent deadness because spring always follows the winter, and it's become increasingly common for people to view the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the same lens, that of course you can't actually believe that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God, it's just a metaphor, you know, because life is full of crucifixions, you know, setbacks and dead ends and and closed doors, but if you just kind of hang on, it'll, it'll lead to resurrections, you know, new beginnings and new opportunities and You know, it's like Alfred famously told the young Bruce Wayne in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, why do we fall so we can learn to pick ourselves up? I just want to point this out. A message like that would have never had the impact on the world that Christianity has had because a message like that does not have the power to help anybody who's experiencing real suffering. Uh, A message like that does nothing for a widow who's grieving the loss of her husband, wondering what the rest of her life's going to look like. Uh, That message cannot help an abuse survivor who feels like their childhood's been stolen from them. Can't help a parent who's lost a child, and it certainly cannot help somebody dealing with their own mortality when they hear that they only have months to live. And I'll tell you that regardless of what you believe today, it is a plain fact of history that Christians were the most persecuted people group for the first three centuries in the Roman Empire. They experienced unfair treatment, imprisonment, persecution. They were tortured. They were murdered in all kinds of inhuman ways, but... They were transformed by the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the midst of their suffering until eventually that entire Roman Empire was, was transformed by the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since then, that message has gone into every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's transformed the lives of countless men and women, including the people that you heard from just moments ago. The reason for that is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. It's a literal, physical event that took place in history, and it has the power to change your life. What I'd like to do today is read you Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 28. I'll read this quickly, but I want to read the whole chapter to you. It says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. Listen, I've told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, 
do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we'll deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Now, I said before I read this that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has the power to change your life. In order for that to happen, there's really two questions that you have to wrestle with in light of what you've just heard. These two questions are going to frame the talk this morning. Uh, The first is, what sense does the resurrection make? The second is, what difference does it make? I want to begin by asking the question, what sense does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make? In a culture that's as as skeptical about miracles as ours is, uh, I feel like if you don't address the intellectual obstacles that modern people have with this account, you know, you're you're wasting your time. So what I want to do for kind of the first half of this message is offer you three reasons that it is very difficult to dismiss the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reasons are, number one, the timing is too early. Number two, the content is too counterproductive. And number three, the transformation is too radical. So let me walk through kind of these three um, defenses for the resurrection. First off, the timing's too early. One really common objection uh, to Christianity in general has to do with the timing of the, of the writing of the accounts of Jesus' life. A lot of people, if asked who Jesus is, will say something along these lines. Jesus was a, Jesus was a good man. You know, but over time, his followers, maybe meaning well, embellished about his life. They started to say maybe he was more than a man. Miracle stories got attached to his name. They started to say, well, maybe he wasn't crucified. Maybe he actually died for the sins of the world, you know, and and maybe he came back to life. And over centuries of the legends evolving, they got written down. They became what we now refer to as the New Testament. And that's how you have Christianity. Uh, That's a very common um, perception, rather, of Christianity. That's sort of mixture of what you'll get from Religion 101, Philosophy 101, and the Da Vinci Code. The only problem with that account of Christianity is that every single aspect of it is utterly and entirely wrong. So let's, let's start here. The, the New Testament letters written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul primarily uh, can't be considered legends. When we talk about a legend, we're talking about an account that's written so long after the events it describes that no one can reasonably either credit or discredit the account. That's what a legend is defined as. The New Testament letters simply aren't like that. Uh, They were written within the lifetimes of the people that were there, and you even see that in this account. For instance, verse 15, it says, So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. Matthew is writing so soon after the events he describes here that he could still talk about the fact that this particular story 
was still in circulation. That's because Matthew, you may be surprised to hear, was writing not 300 years after the resurrection, but just 30. And Paul, uh, who wrote about 13 books of the New Testament, was writing just 15 years after the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he makes an insane claim if he was making this story up. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that not only did Jesus Christ raise from the dead and visit numerous people, but on one occasion, the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 people at the same time. He says most of them are still alive, and you can go ask them if you don't believe me. Now, I don't have to tell you that's an insane claim to make if you're making up a religion. When you're making up a religion, you say something like, I've had a divine revelation that can't be proven or disproven. You just got to take my word for it. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what any of the first followers of Jesus are saying. They're saying there's a whole lot of people that all claim they saw the same thing with their own two eyes. If you don't believe me, go ask them. That would be the equivalent. If Paul's writing 15 years after the resurrection, that would be the equivalent of me, we're in 2022, saying that I know a dead guy that came back to life in 2007. First off, how horrifying that 2007 is now 15 years behind us. Not the point of this teaching. However, this would be the equivalent of me saying, I know a dead guy that came back to life in 2007. He appeared to 500 people. They're still alive. If you want to prove me wrong, go talk to them and see if they don't confirm my claim. Right then and there, Christianity had every reason to die before it got started, and yet here we are today, 2,000 years later, still talking about this. So first off, the timing of the writing of the accounts makes it very difficult to dismiss the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, the content is too counterproductive. Maybe you hear that and you say, okay, fine, it was written earlier than I thought, but the only reason that an account like this got off the ground is because people back then were gullible uh, and, and easy to mislead and, of course, prone to believing something like this actually happened. Again, let's take that idea into the text and see what we find here. In verses 16 and 17, it says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Verse 17, When they saw Jesus, Jesus who told them over and over and over again, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be back. He said when they, it says, When they saw Jesus, they worshipped, but some doubted. Isn't that an interesting detail? That some of the, the, the hand-picked disciples Jesus spent three and a half years with, that he was preparing for this event, uh, Matthew's telling us here that, that, that even some of them doubted. I just want to ask you, if you were making this whole thing up, would you write that here? Would you include that detail? Would you say that some of the men that went on to be founders of the movement known as Christianity themselves doubted the resurrection even though they saw it with their own eyes? Of course you wouldn't say that. You say that these men were so stalwart in their belief that they set up camps outside the tomb because they just knew Jesus was going to come back. But this is exactly how it would be with real people. What I mean by that is if the risen Jesus appeared to you in your bedroom tonight, I don't think you'd explode in a chorus of there's a river of life flowing out of me. I think first off, you'd be terrified, and if the fear ever subsided, you'd be rubbing your eyes and, and, you know, what the heck is going on, and once Jesus disappeared, you would be second-guessing whether or not you actually saw him for the, probably the rest of your life. Was that real? Did I just really want to believe? That's any, any normal person would be like that. Any normal person would have doubts, and the point is, these were normal people. But, but follow me here. The reason that they had doubts is not just that they're normal people, right? We modern people 
have this tendency to believe, you know, we know better than to believe in miracles because we have a scientific understanding of the world we live in. But of course, ancient people were prone to believing pretty much anything you told them because they had a pre-scientific understanding of the world. And I'll, I'll say this to that claim. It is true that, if, of course it's true, that ancient people were more prone to believing in miracles than we are. However, these were first century people and first century people, for first century people, the resurrection did not make any more sense to them when they heard it than it does to people living in the 21st century. Here's why. Uh, for, first off, for Greeks and Romans in the, in the Roman Empire, <clears throat> Greeks and Romans believed that the body was bad because it's subject to decay and all these things, whereas the spirit or the soul is good. So in their um, worldview, if salvation existed at all, it entailed the soul or the spirit escaping from the body. So the idea of getting a physically resurrected body back wouldn't have even sounded good to them. It certainly wouldn't have made sense to them. So you wouldn't have made up a worldview like that to try to persuade a whole bunch of Greeks and, and, and Romans. You say, well, what about Jewish people? Well, it's true. Most Jewish people, though not all, we know that there were groups of Jews that believed in no afterlife like the Sadducees. Most Jewish people did believe in a general resurrection, here's the key point, at the end of history. But what absolutely nobody believed, what nobody believed is that one person could get their resurrected body in the middle of history and start walking around in the middle of a world that's still broken and stained and marred by sin. My point is, if you were, if you were making up a belief system with which you hope to mislead and deceive uh, first century people, you would never have come up with something like Christianity because it wouldn't have made sense to them. And you see this in Scripture. That's why when Paul is standing in Athens, the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire in Acts 17, he's talking about God. And everybody is leaning into what he says, and it all makes sense, and they're interested. But the moment that Paul starts talking about the resurrection, they laugh him out of the Areopagus. Even back then, they thought it sounded crazy. Same thing in Acts chapter 26, when Paul's on trial before Festus and Agrippa, he's, te- he's giving his testimony, and he's talking about who he was before Jesus and how Jesus changed his life. Nobody had a problem with that. But the moment Paul mentioned the resurrection is when Festus cuts him off and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Too much study is driving you mad. The point is, the Bible is, itself is extremely clear that the resurrection didn't make any more sense to them than they heard it than it does to modern people like us when we first hear it. And so here's the question. Let me just offer you this as a thought experiment. What, what kind of evidence would you need to blow away all your doubts about Christianity and get you to devote your life to it? I'll answer that question for you and go out on a limb and say, pretty strong evidence. You're not going to take this on just somebody's opinion or what somebody says. You would need to know there are really good reasons to believe this. Well, here's the thing. If first century people were just as skeptical as you and I are, just as prone to disbelieving the resurrection as you and I are, they went on to believe. And not just to devote their lives to it, but to suffer and be tortured and be killed rather than deny the resurrection of Jesus. What that means is they must have received evidence at least as strong as the kind of evidence that you and I would need. You know, say what you will about first century people. They were not gullible morons prone to believing the impossible because they had no problem exercising blind faith. They had every reason to discredit this story when they heard it, but they didn't. And the most plausible reason for that is because this story is true. But the third reason, the third reason that it's difficult to dismiss the physical, literal, historical resurrection of Jesus is that the transformation is too radical. To explain what I mean, look at verse 19 here. 
Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a real famous verse in the Bible. Sometimes Christians call that the Great Commission. Let me just sit here for a second and explain exactly what's going on here. Jesus has just risen from the dead. None of his 11 disciples really stuck with him through his crucifixion and burial. None of them actually believed that he was going to come back from the dead, but here he is, he's resurrected. He's now staring at them. And he says, you 11 uneducated fishermen, I want you to go change the world with the message that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because it was God. You want to hear something crazy? They did. What I'm about to share with you is what I consider to be the strongest argument for the historical resurrection of Jesus. This this train of thought has strengthened my faith really more than any other angle I could approach. That's why I wanted to save it for for kind of the last last offense here. Some of you may know this if you've done your own research. There were countless messianic movements in and around Israel in the decades before and after Jesus. When I say messianic movement, that's a movement where somebody starts talking about the fact that they are either God or sent by God and they're here to provide some kind of salvation or deliverance for people. There are countless messianic movements around the time of Jesus, either decades before or decades after, and every single messianic movement in history has four identifiable phases. Uh, Let me just go ahead and prophesy here. If I ever start telling you all or anybody else that I'm, you know, divine, my messianic movement is going to have exactly four identifiable phases, although I'm betting they're going to be really short-lived. Here it is. Every messianic movement in history... The leader claims to be divine. Number two, the leader gets some group of people to believe their claim. Number three, the leader dies. And directly tied to number three, because when people die, they tend to do the same thing, which is stay dead. When they die, number four, the movement dies. See, when you claim... When you claim what Jesus claimed, Buddha didn't claim what Jesus claimed. Buddha didn't claim to save you. He claimed to offer you a way of salvation that you could then walk in. Basically, he offered advice, the eightfold path. Muhammad did not claim to save you. He didn't didn't claim to be Allah. He said, I'm Allah's mouthpiece. I'll tell you what to do if you want to get connected to Allah. And there you have the five pillars of Islam and all that kind of stuff. But when you say what Jesus said, Jesus didn't offer instruction primarily. He didn't offer advice primarily. He offered himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. When you present yourself as the Messiah... When you present yourself as divine and you tell people, don't put your hope in my words, put your hope in me, then when you die, your movement dies with you. That's the way every messianic movement in history has gone. There's exactly one exception to that rule. There is exactly one belief system that has inexplicably managed to survive the death of its founder. That movement is what we now refer to today as Christianity. Christianity not only did not die with its founder, but it exploded after the death of its founder as thousands of Jewish and Greek people went on to believe this crazy sounding story that a dead Jewish carpenter came back to life because he was God to the point that in the year 380, the Roman emperor Theodosius declared Christianity the official belief system of the Roman Empire. Stand back from that and imagine. Rome went from murdering Jesus to publicly declaring that Jesus is the truth, and he is exclusively the truth. That took place in about 350 years, and I'll tell you, 
no historian has been able to offer a satisfactory explanation of how that happened apart from the resurrection of Jesus. So here's what all of this means for you and I today. You can say, as a modern, skeptical, secular person, I'm sorry, I just can't believe in the resurrection. But if that's where you're coming from, then let me just say, if, if you want to operate with any intellectual integrity and you say, I, I'm, I just can't believe in the resurrection, well, then, then now it's on you. And I mean this respectfully, but now it's on you to account for why hundreds of Jewish people all claim to have saw him, even though professing that they did got them tortured and murdered. And now you have to account for why thousands of Jewish and Greek people whose worldviews made no room for a resurrected Messiah changed their minds seemingly overnight and devoted their entire lives to this belief system that was unlike anything that anybody had ever heard of, and you need to account for why the most persecuted group of people for the first three centuries somehow managed to transform the greatest dynasty in human history completely without the use of force. In other words, you need to come up with a historically plausible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church. And I'll tell you, it becomes increasingly difficult to do so with any intellectual integrity if you will not accept the fact that Jesus Christ was literally, physically, historically raised from the dead. And here we are 2,000 years later, and every year, billions, with a B, billions of people are still celebrating the birth, life, death, resurrection of the one founder of a major belief system who claims something none of the other founders claimed, which is not that he was here to help you find God, but that he was God, and he's come all this way to find you. So what sense does the resurrection make? A lot, if you ask me. I don't know if I said anything that, that you haven't heard there before or maybe challenged a couple of preconceived notions that you had, but I'm hoping at least that will cause you to rethink this resurrection, maybe take a second look at it. But in saying all of that, it's not enough to believe in the resurrection as just a naked historical event. So let me shift gears here and get to the second part of our teaching. This one's going to be quicker, but now let me ask the question, what difference does the resurrection make? Fine. Maybe it happened, but what difference does it actually make in your and my life personally? In my experience as a pastor, what I found is that most people outside of Christianity, this is my experience, most people outside of Christianity are not angry about it. They're simply indifferent toward it. Most of the people that I've talked to outside the faith have a mindset that says, hey, I get how that helps some people. I get how parts of that could, could maybe even be good for society, I just don't see how it could possibly be relevant for my life. So, so, so let me go there. What difference does the resurrection make if it's true? <clears throat> I'm going to offer you two answers to that question, uh, and those two answers are going to be our final two ideas during our time together. Number one, here's what difference it makes. The resurrection frees you from yourself. <clears throat> Have you ever asked yourself the question why the resurrection did more than just impress Jesus' followers. I mean, it's not like Jesus stuck around to hang out with them for very long. Um, I wonder if you've ever asked the question, why did it make them happy that Jesus came back from the dead? You know, why did it make them, and we have so many extra-biblical historical documents that confirm this, why is it that when people go on to believe in the resurrection, it seems to make them happy, it makes them kind, it makes them courageous? I'm certainly not saying all Christians are known for this. We have a lot to own up, you know, for on, on, on our end. But at least these first followers of Jesus, the resurrection didn't just impress them. It caused them to live these sacrificial lives of love and service, even for people that were hurting them. Why is that? 
the, the answer to that question is that they understood that the resurrection was not just a naked display of power. It wasn't like Jesus' cosmic way of saying, I told you I was God. You didn't believe me. You tried to kill me. Well, I'm back kind of thing. Uh, Paul, in, in Romans chapter 24, verse uh, chapter 4, there's not 24 verses in Romans. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul explains the personal significance that the resurrection has for you and I. When he says in chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was raised for our justification. He says, Jesus was delivered up for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. <clears throat> That's a kind of scary sounding religious word, but I, I'm going to read you the definition of the Greek word in the Bible that's translated justify. And I, before I do, I want to make a bold claim. <clears throat> I believe that every single person who listens to this teaching your entire life, whether you realize it or not, you have been trying to justify yourself. And I think, and, and I've been doing the same thing. And I think that to a greater degree than we realize has ruined our lives. Here's what it means to justify someone. To show one to be such as he wishes himself to be considered and to declare one to be as he ought to be. When you, so when you justify someone, when, when Scripture says Jesus was raised for our justification, to justify someone means that you're showing them to be what they themselves really want to be. You're showing them to be what they want to be seen as, and you're declaring them to be what they ought to be. In other words, you're saying to that person, you're enough. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to hide. You have nothing to earn. You are enough. There's a world of difference between forgiveness and justification. To be forgiven means you're free to go. To be justified means you're free to come home. Now, there's one reason that God tells us in Scripture that Jesus justifies us through his resurrection, and it's because God knows how much your and my heart needs to hear that. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that when sin entered the world, the very first effect of sin was shame. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. It is the first felt effect of, of sin. Just before sin entered the world, this is the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. That means that that man and that woman experienced a reality that you have never known in your entire life. Adam and Eve, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, they knew what it was like to have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. Naked and unashamed means there, there were no need for defenses. There were no need for barriers. It was complete vulnerability, complete openness, complete transparency in every, every possible way. The moment that sin entered the world, the man and the woman experienced shame, and so they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves. And what that story is meant to show you and I about, uh, it, about us is that ever since sin entered the world, the human heart has had this desperate need to cover itself. The human heart has a desperate need to hide. And the, the only difference, we all hide behind fig leaves, the only difference is what the fig leaves look like. We don't want anybody to see into our lives because we know that if people could see deeply into our lives, then, of course, they'd see things that we're ashamed of. So every single one of us does the same thing Adam and Eve did all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We try to sew fig leaves together and hide ourselves and cover ourselves. It's just a question of what those fig leaves look like. Right? Some people hide behind their careers, meaning you, know, you kill yourself on the job. You sacrifice everything else that matters in life for the sake of that job with this deep-seated belief that maybe if I just achieve, maybe if I just get to this level, maybe if I just succeed, then, then I'll feel like I'm finally enough. Some people hide behind their money believing that if they can just afford a certain lifestyle, that then I'll finally feel like I'm a success, like I'm a worthwhile person. Some people hide behind other people, 
believing if I can just get the right person to love me, maybe that love will heal me, will fill, fill, this, fill this void that I have. Some people hide behind their own morality. Some people hide behind a substance. But the point is, and this is, I've heard it said before, that history is just a long, sad story of people trying to make themselves happy outside of God. What the Bible's telling us from cover to cover is that no matter, no matter what we achieve in our careers, no matter how many relationships we cycle through, no matter how much money we make, no matter how good we try to be, no matter how much we try to distract and medicate ourselves, what we all eventually realize is the same thing that Adam and Eve realized that day in the garden, that our fig leaves don't work. Now, I want to read you something from a theologian you've never heard of before. His name's Brad Pitt. This came, this came, this came from a 1999 Rolling Stone. That joke always kills every single time. It's like I just, I can count on it. You know, if I got to lift us. All right, here it is. I found this years ago. This is from Brad Pitt being interviewed in a Rolling Stone. He said, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. We've got to find something else. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we're heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being, and I don't want that. The interviewer, who I'm assuming almost fell out of their chair at this point, then asked Sir Pitt, uh, well, then what's the answer to that problem? Here's what he said. Hey, man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know, but I'm telling you, and listen to this. This is the one statement I wanted you to hear. He says, I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. Now, no one's going to want to hear that. I understand it. I'm sorry. I'm the guy who's got to say it, but I'm telling you. One more time. Once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. <clears throat> that, all that is, that's Brad Pitt in his own words. He's putting into, um, in a culturally relevant way, he's putting into words what the Bible says every single one of us knows deep within our inner being. That no matter what we achieve, no matter what relationships we get into, no matter how many filters we throw up on our selfies on Instagram, whatever it is, we know we can't justify ourselves. We, we can't get rid of this nagging sense that we're not measure up, that we, that, that we don't measure up, that we're not adequate, that we can't pass scrutiny, that all this kind of... All of that is what makes the promise of the resurrection so amazing because the resurrection says you can escape that way of life knowing that God himself has covered you because Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection justifies you. Now, I, I, I want you to consider for a moment how amazing it is that the man that God gave us that promise through, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, was a man like Paul. Because if you know anything about Paul's story, you know that before he gave his life to Jesus, he murdered people. He leveraged violence against people in the name of God. Now, what that means, and, and this is actually something that I love about Paul. That's the guy that God gave us 13 letters of the New Testament through. Here's what that means. Even after Paul gave his life to Jesus, Paul had done irreparable damage. In other words, Paul had done things that he could not undo. And here's what I think. I think that today, Easter Sunday, there's people listening to me right now who feel exactly like Paul did. You feel like you have done things that you cannot undo damage that cannot be undone, decisions that cannot be unmade. 
And I'll tell you, you're exactly right. You cannot undo what you have done. But the promises of the gospel is that Jesus Christ can. Jesus Christ can do something for you that no person, no pill, no pay raise will ever be able to do for you. Jesus Christ will justify you. He will make you right with God. He will settle your account with the one person, the only person whose opinion of you ultimately matters. And as that becomes real to your heart, that will lead not just to spiritual freedom, but to psychological freedom, unlike anything else in this world. So that's all theories and concepts. If I can just get a little bit honest with you on a Sunday morning, a little bit about me. I'm, a, I'm actually a twin, but I'm a firstborn. Only beat my brother by a minute, but I've held that over his head his entire life. Plenty to continue to do so. I'm a firstborn. Uh, if you know Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFJ. If you're an Enneagram fan, I'm an Enneagram One. I'm a perfectionist. Here's what all those four things mean. I'm crazy. <laughs> and I've been to a counselor who's told me it. Uh, what all four of those things mean when you put them together is my whole life, I have been incredibly 